This morning, I'm going to be starting a new series from the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can go ahead and begin to open them. We won't be reading right away, but I want you to know where we're going. And uh, if you're not sure exactly where Malachi is, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you can find Matthew, just go left a page or two, and you'll be there at the beginning of Malachi. If you are a guest with us or new to Redeeming Grace, Matt and I uh, typically do separate series, uh, and that's mostly just to serve us and our planning and preparation because uh, what we find in the process is that things change a little bit week to week, um, and so for us to prepare in advance, it's just helpful that we have uh, a series that, that we're working through. So I'll be working through Malachi over the next number of months. When I have opportunity to speak, Matt will be jumping back into the Gospel of John next Sunday, just so you know what to expect. I um, wrapped up a series on James earlier this summer, and this morning we are beginning the prophet Malachi, or as some of you may know him, Malachi, the Italian prophet. That's not true. Um, so if you are taking notes, don't put that down. I'm just aware that for some of us, that may be about all we know of Malachi, so I wanted to get that out of the way from the beginning. Um, Malachi is probably a fair bit less familiar to most of us than John or James or Paul's epistles. So I'm actually going to take the bulk of our time, a good chunk of our time this morning, seeking to give us context so we understand the setting that Malachi was speaking into. As I mentioned, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament and it follows several other books in the Old Testament that are probably also fairly unfamiliar to many of us. So what I want to do before getting into Malachi itself is actually pull back even further to look at a rough sketch well of the whole Old Testament this morning. Because many times in a typical... New Year's resolution to read through the Bible. We might make it to Leviticus, perhaps Numbers if we're really going strong before things start to die out. And, and even if we feel brave enough to, to dip back in to Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Malachi is in a section of our Bibles that's probably a bit dusty for most of us. The Old Testament as a whole often seems daunting and less accessible. So I think oftentimes we just might not spend much time in it. And just to be honest, the further you go in the Old Testament, the less it reads like a historical novel and the more unfamiliar and confusing it becomes. Even if we make it all the way to the minor prophets, we can often feel like we've lost the plot by the time we get to them. Or am I the only one that that, that has happened to? Now, in our defense... Part of the reason for that is the way that the Old Testament is organized and laid out in our Bibles. Which is something that we might often not give much attention or much thought to. You see, it isn't just laid out in chronological order like a typical novel or many of the other books um, that we would often read. And as an aside, I would just say I have really benefited personally from following a chronological reading plan um, at different times, um, like one you can find in the ESV Bible app. 
where it takes you through the Scripture in a chronological fashion because the way it's laid out just from Genesis through to Malachi is not really a chronological order. First, um, it uh, is arranged by the type of literature, and then there's rough uh, chronological order. But I, I find that reading the Bible chronologically can really add um, and helping me follow the storyline that the whole uh, section that I am in is following. And it helps me find my place with the different players and genres in their historical setting. So that's just an aside. Um, but, but the reality is, as we look at the way our Bibles are laid out, a book in one genre might appear um, after those in another genre, even though chronologically it came hundreds of years before the books that preceded it. So uh, that can be confusing if we're not aware and if we're just reading our Bible through or if we are just dropping into some passage unaware of what the setting and context is of the particular book that we're reading. So I've provided a handout for you that kind of gives us an overview of the chronology of the Old Testament. If you didn't get one, I think we have some folks that can make those available. Um, but if you would look at that, I want to note a few things. Because I think it will help with our understanding. First is that even though this is laid out in a chronological order, um, it doesn't mean that all the blocks of time are to scale with one another. Uh, it, for instance, if you note the years for the book of Genesis, you'll see that it covers roughly 2,500 years of human history, which is derived from the genealogies and the ages of individuals and confirmed with different historic, outside historical documents. But those 2,500, 2,500 years in Genesis are more than a thousand years longer than the rest of the Old Testament combined. So if we're just looking at, at the story, we see a lot of history that's happening. Even in just the first few chapters of Genesis. And then the narrative slows down quite a bit as we zoom in to one particular family. And, you know, this isn't unusual. I mean, when we watch films today, a filmmaker is telling a story. And we may be watching for two hours a particular show or movie, but the story that we're watching may encompass days or years or a lifetime. And we likely get establishing scenes to develop the characters in the first hour, but the last hour of the movie is all from the final week of the story with 30 to 40 minutes of finale, all devoted to a climax that is very short, maybe just a few days or hours or even minutes compared to the length of the entire story that's being told. Because the director chose to spend the most time on the details that were most relevant, often the most tense in order to build to the exciting conclusion that will leave the audience the most satisfied. Well, the author of this book has a story to tell. It's not just history for the sake of history or poetry in pursuit of artistic accolades. God, the author of this book, has a goal he is aiming at, a message he wants to convey. And so he selects specific accounts from strategic periods of time and particular individuals to tell a story that gets his point across. And he slows down the account at different times and lingers 
to help make sure that we don't miss the most important details. And looking at this chart, we can see that, that there are times where hundreds of years come and go with almost no information in the biblical text. And then there are others where we have multiple accounts and perspectives from different angles of a relatively short period of time. Which is very similar to what we see in the Gospel accounts and having four of those to, to give us a picture of that most important period of human history and the birth and the life and the ministry of Christ and His death, resurrection and ascension. Because God, as the author of this book, wanted to make sure we don't miss that which is most important. So, here we see in this chart things like First and Second Chronicles overlapping the reign of, of David and Solomon and the, and the two kingdoms. We see all the prophets kind of jammed into such a, a short span of Israel's history rather than evenly spread throughout the 1,500 years of Abraham's family. The first 11 chapters of Genesis give us a flyover of almost 2,000 years of human history from creation to flood to Babel. And then, what we have in chapter 12 is a pivot, a transition, where the story locks in to one man, Abram, whom God makes a covenant with and renames Abraham, promising him that a great nation will come from him and blessing will come to all the families of the earth through him. And then what we have in the rest of the Old Testament, everything after Genesis follows the story of his family. His son Isaac and grandson Jacob who God renames Israel. And Israel's twelve sons who become known as the twelve tribes of Israel. The middle blocks that we see here on this chart with the numbers corresponding to the years are, are the first set of books that we have in our Old Testament. The, the books of history that give us the storyline of this nation, this people of Israel. There's some historical overlap and, and we can see below the chart, some different books um, from different genres, both some history books as well as some of the, the wisdom literature that, that roughly in their, their periods that are concurrent with that middle line above. And, and some of those, as we look at where they fall in relation to the others, they don't surprise us because we know Moses wrote Leviticus and Deuteronomy as well as as Numbers and, and Exodus. And so, um, you know, the fact that those are together being ones that he wrote while Israel was in the wilderness, that makes sense. We know that Ruth took place during the time of Judges, so we see that lined up. But a book like Job might seem totally out of place because in our Bibles... Job doesn't appear until after all of the historical books have come, all the way through um, to the book of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And then comes Job. But Job actually was likely the first biblical book actually written down. And you believe that Job was a contemporary of Abraham. And so you have this book that came a thousand years before some of these different books of history of Israel in our Bible coming later because 
Job is considered to be part of the wisdom literature, and so it is grouped with Psalms and Proverbs in our Old Testament. The final grouping of Old Testament books are the prophets, which are the ones in the top section on this chart. And in our Bibles, they're ranked, well, first by size. Um, we have the major prophets, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, which are just longer books. And Lamentations is thrown in there too because it's attributed to Jeremiah. And then we have the twelve minor prophets who are called the minor prophets because of the brevity of their book, not the lack of importance that they have. For they were called by God to speak to people on His behalf. Now, the chart doesn't show it really well, but the prophets, the writing prophets, began ministering around the time of 2 Kings uh, on this schedule. And so they're all jammed into a relatively short period of time. But it's just hard to stack them all on this chart. Now, we know that the, the priests... They came from the tribe of Levi, Aaron's sons. The kings, David's line, came from the tribe of Judah. But with the prophets, they often just seem to come out of nowhere. We often aren't given their lineage or history. They are simply individuals called by God to speak His Word. As the chart reflects, some to the northern kingdom, some to the southern kingdom and some to other nations, and even oppressing kings. And these books in particular, I think for many of us, they often seem mysterious and intimidating. And part of that is because of how we often perceive prophecy. We tend to think of their ministry as foretelling or predicting the future, which is something... That was part of the ministry of the prophets. In particular, they prophesied, they foretold about coming judgment that God was going to bring because of their rebellion. They also told of blessings that would come if they would repent and turn to God and return to Him and honor the covenant that He had made with them. And We also see snapshots from them of the promised Messiah. But where we can get tripped up many times is thinking that that's all that is contained in these books. Because in reality, foretelling or predicting the future makes up about 5% of the prophetic literature. The other 95% would be better classified as forthtelling or speaking God's Word to the current situation. It, it's preaching. It's representing God to the people, calling them to account for how they have erred. Again, calling them to repent. They are preachers. Now, yes... Um, some of them use poetic language or strange imagery. Sometimes God gave them odd assignments in order to convey their message. Things that can seem quite odd to our modern ears. But their primary role was as preachers calling people to repent and to heed the Word of the Lord. Now the particular context that the prophets spoke into is a result of the dotted lines that we see down at the bottom of the page following Solomon's reign when the kingdom of Israel was split into two. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, well, let's just say that he didn't have the wisdom of his father and he made some really poor choices that led ten of the tribes of Israel to
to break off from the kingdom of Israel and form a new nation. So Israel, the 12 top tribes, the family of Israel was split into two nations. And the 10 tribes that split off, they made a city in the north their capital. That city was Samaria. They kept the name Israel as their designation because they, hey, um, there's more of us. We're going to keep this name. We're going to establish our own kingdom. They settled with Samaria as their capital, which is the context of the bad blood that we see carried through all the way into the New Testament in Jesus' day as well. The southern kingdom, the two tribes that remained and followed the current line of kings from the line of David and the line of Solomon, since that was the tribe of Judah that those kings came from, their nation was called Judah. And it kept as its capital the city of Jerusalem. Now, something I think is really helpful for us to understand about these two new divided kingdoms. Um, Judah, the southern kingdom, the two tribes, it had a succession of 20 kings from Rehoboam until the time it was taken captive by the Babylonians. Of those 20 kings, a whopping total of four are listed in Scripture as being good kings or following in the ways of the Lord. There are another four that were listed as having a mixture of good and bad that was attributed to them. Some started well and fell away. Others were evil but repented later in life. The other 12 kings of Judah were all listed as evil in the sight of the Lord. Leading their people astray. Worshipping idols. Doing practices that were abhorrent to the God of Israel. That was Judah. The nation of Israel, the ten tribes that split off and had Samaria as their capital, had 19 kings between the time they split off and when they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Do you know how many Israelite kings were listed as good kings? Zero. One was given a mixed mark. The rest were all recorded as doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Leading their people into idolatry. Worshipping the Baals and the Ashtras. And leading them in practices as abominable as child sacrifice. This is what the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had become. Four out of 39 total kings received a passing grade. So it seems like some things with politics never change. God had covenanted with Abram in Genesis 12. And He, he promised blessings to and through His offspring. But from the beginning... Well, if we're taking an honest look at Scripture, Abram's family tree is a mess. Abram's grandson, Jacob, is called the deceiver. And he's renamed Israel by God. His 12 sons 
the patriarchs, the tribes of Israel, are not exactly the portraits you want hanging on the boardroom of the family business. They have episodes of murder, prostitution, and selling their brother into slavery in Egypt. Well, into slavery, their brother Joseph. But God rescues not only Joseph, but the whole clan through him in Egypt. 400 years go by, and Egypt, the land of their rescue, becomes Egypt, the land of their bondage. So God provides the pinnacle event of rescue and redemption in the Old Testament. The picture of salvation that God gives of, in the Old Testament is having His servant Moses deliver His people from slavery and leading them out of Egypt toward the promised land. Moses is used by God to give His people His law. This, this covenant that shows how they are to relate with Him as He has promised to relate lovingly and kindly with them. Then Joshua leads the conquest of the promised land before the people essentially nosedive for a few hundred years during the time of the judges where there is little visible fruit of relating with God as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Following this time, the people ask for a king and God grants them their wish through Saul. A blessing at first who quickly becomes a curse when he leaves the path of humility and exchanged it for presumption and jealousy. There was a brief period of national fame and favor for Israel with the reigns of David and Solomon before, as we mentioned once again, the nation divides and both sides again go downhill fast. And there are generations of unfaithfulness, neglect of the Lord and His ways, outright rebellion against Him, and civil war with each other. So, God promises to judge. He brings warnings of judgment to both nations. It says that He's going to use foreign nations to bring them into captivity and destruction. And despite some occasional signs that they might respond, short-lived times of revival, They quickly go back to their old ways. And God is faithful to bring about the reality of that which He had promised. First, Israel, the northern land, the ten tribes, is conquered and taken into captivity at the hand of the Assyrians. And again, just for context, Nineveh was an Assyrian city and it's the reason that Jonah hated it so. Why he wanted to go the opposite direction. Because these were their enemies, their oppressors. He wanted nothing to do with preaching a message of repentance to them because he knew the goodness and mercy of God. Because, frankly, Israel was in need of it constantly. Israel was not relating to God on the basis of their merit, but God only showed kindness to them ongoingly because of His slowness to anger, because of His mercy and His forbearance. They were constantly turning against 
and rebelling against Him. The Assyrians conquered and exiled Israel and the kingdom literally fell apart. Judah, the southern kingdom, lasted a bit longer, almost 150 years, until they too were taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Included in that were Daniel and his companions as they were taken as prisoners to Babylon. In Jerusalem, the temple was destroyed. The walls were knocked down and leveled. And the line of kings of Judah were also ended. Now, Babylon, as a nation, tried to force conquered nations to abandon their customs and their gods. So that's why we have stories like the lion's den and the fiery furnace. Because it was, our way is the way and you must submit or you will perish. The Persians... King Cyrus conquered Babylon while Judah was in captivity. And Cyrus had a very different take on how he wanted to treat his subjected people. He wanted to, instead of just forcing them under his thumb, he wanted to win their approval by some signs of kindness to them, asking their counsel on different things, encouraging them in their customs, and even requesting on their behalf that they would pray to their own gods for His benefit. And it's in that spirit that He began to release some of the exiles to go back to the land of Judah, back to Jerusalem so that they could rebuild the temple so that their God would give Him favor. So we see this turning of the tide and exiles be beginning to return to the promised land. It's at this time that Ezra the priest was sent back to oversee the rebuilding of the temple. And then Haggai and Zechariah were prophets that ministered during this time, calling the nation to reform as they rebuilt, seeking to stir hope for a renewed kingdom. Because they had ample opportunity to look at what God had done. God was faithful to the warnings that He had given them. Their idolatrous ways had resulted in their nation being utterly destroyed. Everything that they valued was taken from them. And they were even taken from the land itself. And so the prophets come and say, we can't go back to our old ways. We need to reform. We need to follow the ways of the Lord because He is faithful. Not only has He rescued us in the past and shown His amazing kindness time after time when we have not deserved it, but when He has warned us of consequences of our sin, He has been faithful to deliver that. So though these paths of righteousness are not well-worn paths for us, we need to turn. We need to repent. We need to walk in the ways that God has made clear for us. We might have hope for a renewed kingdom. But even as the temple was rebuilt, the glory of the Lord did not return in a manifestation like the tabernacle with Moses and Aaron or the dedication of Solomon's temple where these clouds came and filled and pushed everyone out because it was clear that God was in this 
place. With this rebuilt temple, they didn't have that experience. And different prophets prior to and during the exile had, had promised a future return to glory for Israel where all the nations would again seek them out. Where God and His presence would mark them as His people where His ways would be written on their hearts. But as the people looked around them, the sad reality was, this doesn't look anything like the promises that we have heard. And it made the present reality seem just full of empty promises. Then we have the account of Nehemiah returning to build the walls of Jerusalem to serve as governor there. But as we reach the conclusion of his account, it's clear that true and lasting change, hey guys, still had not come to Israel. There were issues of unfaithfulness and indifference in their worship, their relationship with God and their relationships with one another. There were problem after problem. This was the context that Malachi, the final Old Testament prophet, was called to speak into. Nearly a hundred years after exile, the outright idolatry of pre-exile, the worshiping of the Baals and the Ashtras, that, that had not returned. But, by the time we get to Nehemiah and Malachi, we see really a half-hearted response to the Lord at best. Because even though the outright idolatry was God, people were still waiting for God to show up to fulfill His promises. And the reality is that all the waiting produced weariness. Did He forget about them? They were still under the rule of the Persians? Did He still intend to return them to prominence. Their present state seems so far away from any return to glory that, that many of them wondered if, if what they did, how they related to God, mattered at all. They, they saw the results of their outright sin, but, but now when they, they had made some attempts to follow Him, and they weren't seeing quick results, well, the question came, why bother? What does it matter? Is it worth giving our best to God when it feels like He's holding out on us? Like He's not holding up His end of the bargain? Why should we put in the effort? And I don't know about you, but I know in my life, it doesn't actually require hundreds of years of waiting for something for the same attitudes to commandeer my heart. I can get there pretty quickly when I don't get what I want. When I don't get what I think I am owed by God. Malachi's book, the bulk of it is arranged in a series of disputes between God and Israel regarding their relationship with Him and their relationships with one another. It actually starts almost out of the gate 
In the second verse, Malachi 1-2, we read, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's fair to say that the relationship is tense at this juncture. When everything is being questioned, even a basic declaration of God's love for His people, it's immediately questioned, how? I don't see it. Prove it to me, God. Is the attitude that the people have developed over a long time of waiting to see God at work in their midst. If we go a few verses further, we read the next dispute in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1, where God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? God responds by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Every point is contentious, including with the priests themselves, those that have been given the assignment of representing God, of being the keepers of the covenant and the sacrificial ways to keep the people in right relationship with God. They are not immune to the degradation of heart that has taken place at this time that Malachi is called to speak into. After each dispute, the Lord responds to their accusations or He makes a case against the people. And we'll spend a future message with each of these disputes in coming months. For today, I want to take our remaining time in the introduction of this book, which... You can rest easy. It's all of one verse. So I want to highlight a few things there before wrapping up with a preview of the overarching theme of this book. Here is our intro to the book of Malachi. Verse 1-1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Each of these words or phrases contains something I don't want us to miss. Let's look real quickly first at the Word of the Lord. The Lord here is not just a generic reference to God, but the personal covenant name of God, Yahweh, revealed to Moses when He asked Him His name and He declared his title, I am who I am, and proclaimed his name in Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation. This is the Lord spoken of here, whose word is being given. Yahweh is a speaking God. And this account is His word. Malachi wants to make absolutely clear where this message has come from and the fact that ignoring this message and the warnings it contains is ignoring God, Yahweh Himself. Second word I want to look at is oracle, which can mean kind of the mouthpiece of God. But, but here, there's another translation that 
fits better. Oracle here is best translated as burden in this passage. The burden of the Word of the Lord. Which really indicates both the weightiness of the message and a cause for the hearers to pay attention as well as the weight that I am sure Malachi feels in seeking to convey it. Again, Malachi has just said that this is not a personal message. This comes from God, from Yahweh Himself. And it's a heavy load for Him to bear to seek to convey to the people that it must be delivered to. The prophets, as a whole, were not popular people. Not in their own time. It's a comment Jesus made years later. Hey, if, if you would have been around during the time of the prophets, you would have killed them too. You don't get away with revering them now, centuries later, when there's no threat to you. You would have been like everyone else during their time. And you would have rejected their message because I know your hearts. The prophets were not popular men. They carried a message from God that called His people to account. They spoke out against corruption and rebellion. They were not permitted by God to turn a blind eye. God had a message and they were called to proclaim it. And even the message itself Many times, the prophet themselves didn't even like the message that they were called to proclaim. I mean, think about Jonah getting on a boat headed the total opposite direction just so he wouldn't have to deliver what God had called him to. Or think of Hosea. Broken over his unfaithful wife who God had called him to marry as a picture of Israel. Or Jeremiah, being told not to take a wife or to have children because the coming destruction that he was called to proclaim would be so severe, it would be a punishment to have family members around and see them go through what was coming. The prophets weren't just wild-eyed guys that had this glee of pronouncing doom. They were individuals that had their own hearts broken many times over the message that God had them to bear and weep over their people, pleading with them to repent. Because they believed this God and what He said. They knew there was real danger in the warnings. Yet oftentimes, the people's ears were stopped and they could do nothing but proclaim the message to deaf ears. And we get an idea of the weightiness, the burden that Malachi speaks of here. Hebrews 11 reveals that for many of the prophets, their message was a death sentence. Yet they treated the Word as from the Lord, the great I Am, and faithfully delivered it on His behalf. The author of Hebrews says, of them the world was not worthy. Next phrase is by Malachi. We don't know much else about Malachi except what we find in this writing. His name means my messenger. But we don't know whose son he is or which clan he hails from. What we do know is that this burden for the Word of the Lord came by or through Malachi. It was divine in origin, but delivered by a human mouthpiece. Because God achieves His perfect purposes 
through human agents. And here, in this account, he uses Malachi's context, his language, his style to get his message across. God's not limited. He could have used angels to proclaim His message. He could have sent it telepathically. He could have written it in the sky. But God's normal way of communicating with the world is through His people. That's true when it comes to writing Scripture 2,500 years ago. And it's true when He wants to pass on His Word today through preaching and through you and through me sharing it with those around us. Even when a message is weighty or unpopular, He calls His people to be the messengers. Us. We are the ones through whom He has chosen to make His Word known today. Final phrase I want us to see is to Israel. And this isn't a throwaway either. This is not insignificant. The people of God, the twelve tribes, started out as one family. They divided into two kingdoms after Solomon died. As we said, the northern kingdom based in Samaria called Israel went into exile and disintegrated under the Assyrians. But it was Judah, the southern king, exiled by the Babylonians, that returned to Jerusalem and received this prophecy from Malachi. So why are they addressed as Israel? Well, because Malachi is going to be referring to their early history as God's people and the covenant promises made to their whole family, not just part of it. And he uses their ancient name to address them as the called out people of God because he has not forgotten or abandoned them. Even though whole generations have turned from and neglected him. I want us to close by reading two pivotal verses which are key to receiving some of the very challenging aspects of the burden God calls Malachi to deliver. Because there will be challenges in his message. But chapter 1, verse 2, he begins, I have loved you, says the Lord. And in verse 3, or sorry, chapter 3, verse 6, God proclaims, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Here is what I want us to see from everything we've looked at this morning the message from the final book in the Old Testament is that God's unchanging love gets the last word. To His people, He makes plain, if this relationship was determined by you or your behavior or your choices or your faithfulness, forget about it. It would have been over at the very beginning. The nation of Israel failed to uphold the covenant from the very start. They were unfaithful, running after idols while forsaking the one true God. Yet Yahweh is again coming after them, declaring His love for them and commitment to them. He is determined. to love them as He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob a millennia and a half before. Because He, the Lord, does not change. 
so they can still have hope. Anyone else would have abandoned them centuries ago, but the unchanging God is committed to loving them and relating with them, though they have never deserved it. And this unchanging God is the same One who chooses to set His affection upon you. Not because of our greatness or our faithfulness, but to display His greatness and faithfulness. There is no one like our God. Israel needed to be reminded in Malachi's day. And friends, we need to be reminded again and again in ours. His love is not determined by what we feel in the moment or the number of items on our wish list that get checked off today. His love is determined by who He is. A faithful God who has chosen to love and does not change. Malachi ends with final warnings for evildoers regarding the coming day of the Lord and promises of blessing for those that fear Him. For the people who received this message first, they had already felt they had been waiting too long for the promises to be fulfilled. And for them, they would not hear the Word of the Lord again for 400 more years. They wouldn't see the glory of the Lord fill the temple. They wouldn't receive another prophetic voice making known the ways of the Lord. Just this final voice declaring God has loved them and Yahweh does not change. For 400 more years, they needed to trust. Trust that the speaking God is real. Trust that He is faithful and true. And wait for Him to redeem and rescue. Then, into the darkness, light. An angel proclaimed the Lord's favor to a young woman, and a whole host of angels declared glad tidings to the most unlikely recipients. A voice called out in the wilderness, make way for the coming of the Lord, and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What those in Malachi's day could only guess at and wait for, we have been given testimony of. He has come. He has shown the depths of His commitment to us not by sending a political ruler or military leader, but by stepping into the story Himself. Humbling Himself by becoming one of us. God the Son given for us so we never need wonder if He loves us. Or is committed to us. Never need doubt whether or not He is for us. The message of Malachi is that God does love us. That He is faithful. Even if it doesn't seem like everything is going our way right now. The fulfillment of His good promises may be delayed according to our timeline, but never His. He will be revealed as faithful. So may we be found wholehearted in our commitment to Him. And just know that even when we do fail, that doesn't negate His love or His commitment to us, because His unchanging love gets the last word. If the worship team could come back for the final song, let's pray together. No no song? Alright. We're going to not sing. I'm going to pray. Father, thank You that we have record of You at work through history.
to point us to that most glorious good news, what You have done for us that we could never do on our own behalf. Thank You that You sent Your Son to rescue those who were wayward and far off. That though our own stories may not be testimonies of great faithfulness, Yours is. Would You help us to love You and respond and relate to You because of who You are. In Your great name we pray. Amen.